You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... We've got to figure out how we're going to keep funding the government, which is an important problem, an important solution we need to find, and I think we can do that. And Ukraine, I think the need is urgent. How do they avoid a government shutdown? We'll look at the chances of keeping things open in the States beyond Friday. Also ahead... Let me introduce you to an instant classic, the... Renault 5 E-Tech Electric. Thank you. Can Paris take on Beijing's electric car market and win? We'll have the latest on the investigation into the Nord Stream pipeline explosions, the fashion news and why a steak must be a steak and nothing else in France. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US President Joe Biden has won the Democratic presidential primary in Michigan in spite of a campaign against his position on the Israel-Hamas war. Several NATO allies have dismissed a suggestion by the French President Emmanuel Macron that other countries could deploy ground troops to Ukraine. And the lawyer of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been arrested and briefly detained in Moscow. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, unless a deal can be reached by Friday, parts of the US government are facing a shutdown. There was a series of urgent meetings at the White House yesterday with the four big congressional leaders. The meetings highlighted two things, the urgency needed to keep things open and also to free up money to send to help Ukraine. Earlier this month, the Senate passed a bipartisan $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel and other national security priorities. But the Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson hasn't put it to a vote. He won't even put it to the floor. I'm joined now by Natasha Lindstedt, who's Professor of Government at the University of Essex. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning. So just remind us of, uh, well, how is Joe Biden going to keep the government open on Friday? I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, It's not clear if if he can. There is so much polarization in U.S. politics, and I think this is something that has started really since 2010 with the Tea Party movement. And we've been going through this song and dance over and over again where the government uh, is, there's some sort of looming uh, threat to shut down, and it's saved at the last minute by some sort of deal, or it does shut down as it had in in the Trump administration uh, for a particularly long time. Because, in particular, the uh, right-wing part of the Republican Party, led by Mike Johnson in the House, is just unwilling to cooperate on this matter. It's going to make it very difficult to come up with some sort of deal. Uh, and I would say he's more uh, loyal to this right-wing base of Trump than, say, past House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was, who who was at some point willing to make some sort of, of deal. So this this makes it very, very difficult for Biden 
to find a path moving forward. Because even from yesterday, there was an indication that not everybody was talking about the same thing. Some people were talking about funding for Ukraine as being an important uh, issue of debate here and how willing America is for this kind of stuff. Others, and you mentioned Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, wanted to talk about border security. So it's, it's quite difficult to get an agreement when you can't even understand what you're both talking about. Yeah, exactly. And this particular set of meetings about this were incredibly tense. So traditionally, the House has always been united. It's been pretty bipartisan when it comes to supporting foreign policy of of allies. We've never seen a foreign policy issue tied to a more domestic issue, uh, which is border policy, uh, immigration policy. And we're seeing that that's what the Republicans are doing. And even though there was a border deal in place uh, that that Biden was willing to to be on board with, which really the package would have looked like what any Republican would have been supportive of in years past. It's just not extreme enough for the MAGA movement. And, And it's important to note that they don't want a deal before this election in November. They don't want to have a border deal. So they keep using these topics to distract from uh, real politics that's at hand. But it also just makes it incredibly confusing and tense when they're negotiating about important foreign policy issues like aid to Ukraine and Israel. I mean, you say that that they don't want to deal uh, on aid, but does anyone actually want a government shutdown on Friday? Because in the past there have been, uh, you know, people have been gunning for it. Whereas this time around there are questions being asked actually whether there is a genuine desire to, to bring part of the government to a halt. So I think on the Republican side, they don't seem to uh, want to do everything that they can do to prevent this. Uh, they they have they almost benefit from the chaos uh, because then if there's chaos, it looks like we need a change, and and that plays into the angst of their their base. Now the Democrats absolutely do not want to shut down because they want to project an image of strength, uh, and that the government is well funded. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons to not want to support a shutdown, even for uh, Republicans that are, let's just say, more moderate. But this MAGA wing uh, almost wants to create so much chaos that we need to change the system. And that's the type of things that they're saying in their rhetoric. So tell us a little bit more about how people are actually responding to um, Joe Biden saying we absolutely need to do this, because if we do shut down parts of the government, there will be an enormous effect on the economy. Right. And we're at a moment where the U.S. economy is actually finally starting to do better. We're seeing better signs and just in terms of growth rate, inflation starting to go down. Unemployment has been really low, around 3.7 percent. And so the 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 stock market is also doing well. We're, we're finally seeing the economy do well. And this is going to be the most important issue in the election, in spite of all these other foreign policy issues, immigration issues, and, and so forth. Uh, a government shutdown, of course, is going to undermine the uh, at least the perception that the economy is doing well. And that's a huge thing for Biden because he really has to change things around, change the narrative that Biden economics isn't working. Uh, and so the last thing he needs is a shutdown. Um, and where lies the influence of Donald Trump here? Because you, you talked about, you know, the, the Make America Great Again group who are determined uh, to see their side, you know, that their point of view push through. But there's an enormous amount of uh, pressure from Donald Trump, isn't there, to not allow Democrats any wins in an election year? Exactly. And he has almost complete control over the Republican Party. The Republican Party is completely under Donald Trump's thumb. And so they're going to do what he wants them to do. And he doesn't want any deals. Uh, As I mentioned, 
a, a deal would mean that things are going well and, and that we've achieved something. He wants to create an image of uh, a Joe Biden White House that can't get anything done and that he can then come in as sort of a messianic type of figure and save everything. So he has complete control over Mike Johnson. And, you know, there are plenty of Trump acolytes and hardcore supporters in the House that are willing to do whatever they want to do, almost like a scorched earth type of policy. We saw this with the way they ousted Kevin McCarthy and with how long it took for Kevin McCarthy even to become speaker. Uh, uh, So this is a very different type of Republican Party than we've seen in the past. It was willing to work and negotiate with Democrats and was more concerned about getting what they wanted versus getting what Trump wanted. The House reconvenes later today. What's going to happen now? I mean, honestly, it, it's not clear because even though Biden is saying this is incredibly urgent, it's, you know, inaction would have consequences for for Ukraine, for, of course, Israel, for uh, just getting the um, government funded. Republicans haven't been signaling what they exactly are going to do. They've resisted, as you mentioned, Johnson has resisted scheduling it for a vote in the House. So we we really don't know where they're keeping us in suspense. Uh, Let's move on to the primaries in the last 24 hours. Um, There's been uh, the Democratic primary in Michigan, which, as we've just heard in the headlines, uh, Joe Biden won. Uh, He won it comfortably, but he didn't win it completely because there was a there was a protest vote, wasn't there? There was. And and this was led by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is of Palestinian descent um, and, and others, young young voters who are really dissatisfied with the way that the Biden administration has handled the war in Gaza and with the humanitarian uh, crisis that has unfolded there and, and many innocent civilians that have died. And so you've seen that, that Biden did receive... Uh, some 12, 13 percent uncommitted voters. Not all the votes have been counted yet, so I can't give the exact figures there. Now, that is more than what Obama received um, in the 2012 race from Michigan's primary voters. About nine percent voted uncommitted. And this was because they were unhappy with the progress that Obama was making in relation to its relationship, U.S. relationship with Israel. So th- this is not something that is new, but they're trying to grab Biden's attention. This is part of a Listen to Michigan uh, campaign. Uh, there are many Arab American voters in the state of Michigan, almost somewhere around 300,000. Uh, that would tip the balance in the national election if they decided not to vote for Biden. So Michigan is an incredibly important state with 15 electors, and, and they're trying to get Biden's attention. It's not clear how much Biden can do because, as we've seen from President to present. There's not that much that uh, the the U.S. president can do to change policy towards Israel. A little bit of room to maneuver. Uh, but they're clearly uh, hoping that Biden can push for some sort of ceasefire. Uh, the difficulty is, though, is that th- this is now going to have what kind of impact on his re-election prospects later this year? I mean, it could impact things, not because foreign policy is the most important issue in the election. As I mentioned, it's the economy. But in some of these swing states, and Biden has to win Michigan. He absolutely has to win Michigan. It's going to be very difficult for him to find a path to victory without it. And and you have a, a sizable uh, Arab American population in, in states like um, Arizona as well, another swing state. So, given how close these victories were for Biden in 2020, he has to win everybody. He's got to win over young people, and 70% of young Americans under 30 
are unhappy with the way Biden is handling uh, the war in Gaza. They're just generally dissatisfied with uh, with his policies on, on climate change as well. So his coalition, which is this broad coalition, uh, is really dependent on him energizing a lot of different groups. And at the moment, they're not energized. They're not as energized as they were in the 2022 midterms, where they were really uh, going to the polls to try to uh, vote for reproductive rights for women. There's a real issue for the Democratic Party. Their campaign has a lot of legwork to do in the next you know, seven months or so. Natasha Lindstedt, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist. Sixteen twelve in Pyongyang, 7.12am here in London. Now, by how much has North Korea been developing its military arsenal? There are reports that Pyongyang could launch a second military spy satellite while at the same time developing closer ties to Moscow. And while the rest of the world is preoccupied by the conflicts in Gaza and Ukraine, could a third global crisis be bubbling up while no one is looking? Well, I'm joined now by James Fretwell. He's a freelance journalist who joins me on the line now from Taipei. Uh, a very good afternoon to you, James. Thank you for having me on. So this this thought that Pyongyang is is ramping up its nuclear arsenal, where where's the evidence for this? Uh, I think all the evidence, well, it comes from the uh, very, very many missile launches that it's been conducting over the uh, past uh, few years. It's also based on uh, satellite imagery of um, when experts can look at North Korea's nuclear complex and uh, kind of determine uh, whether those facilities are active, and also just by North Koreans' uh, statements, what what Kim Jong Un himself uh, is saying, and it's it's pretty clear from North Korea at the moment that they are going full steam ahead with their weapons programs. Uh, it's not looking good for any kind of diplomacy. Um, with South Korea or the US at the moment. So tell us a little bit about just how capable Pyongyang really is of launching a nuclear attack, because um, we see lots and lots of uh, demonstrations and practices, as you've just mentioned. But I wonder whether people just turn a slight blind eye to it by thinking they'll never manage to do it. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, North Korea, uh, except for the uh, for the Korean War, all those many decades ago, you know, it's never been a, 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 a had direct uh, involvement in in any other conflicts as such. Um, however, um, Russia has been using North Korean missiles in Ukraine, and that marked the uh, first ever time that North Korean missiles had actually uh, been used in in warfare. Uh, it has shipped weapons uh, to other countries uh, before generally small arms to places like uh, Iran or even Hamas was uh, found to be using um, weapons from North Korea as well. But by using North Korean missiles in Ukraine, Russia is going to be providing North Korea um, with you know, valuable real uh, data from the battlefield on how its missiles are doing in North Korea will be able to take that, um, apply it to its missile development programs and use it to make even more effective uh, missiles that can potentially deliver nuclear weapons uh, to to South Korea and um, even with its, with its long range missiles, uh, potentially deliver nuclear weapons to the mainland US. 
In your experience as a journalist, as a freelancer, trying to get this stuff covered, how much interest is there in what's going on? Or is the rest of the world preoccupied with more immediate hot wars? That's a great question. Um, I think a few years ago in, in 2017, North Korea was it was accomplishing all of these firsts, right? It, 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 it launched its first intercontinental ballistic missile capable of hitting the United States, for example. Um, you had Donald Trump, who was uh, threatening fire and fury against North Korea if it kept threatening the US. Uh, and then you had, you know, this complete shift in the situation on the peninsula just a year later. You had all these inter-Korean summits. Uh, you had the Pyeongchang Olympics when Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong uh, came to South Korea to to attend the event. You had summits between Kim Jong-un and Trump. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning all of this is because, you know, those, those events, they really captured headlines. It was very, um, you know, it was very... Uh, very much in the in the forefront of the news coverage at the time. Um, but in recent years, North Korea, the, the stuff that has been testing has been much more dangerous uh, and sophisticated, actually, than what it was testing all those years ago. But I think it's a little bit um, harder to convey that because, you know, it's, it's testing long range missiles that can hit the United States. They're definitely more sophisticated now but you know it's it's like hasn't north korea all, already done that right so it's, it's a little bit uh, more difficult to convey uh, the danger of those weapons um in a in a very uh, short headline and of course as you mentioned as well you have the the wars in in ukraine and also the situation in the middle east so north korea launching another missile uh, in some ways, it might not seem like, you know, is, is there anything new there? Um, but absolutely, I think North Korea is really getting much more advanced with its weapons capabilities. And, and that's something that we should all be quite concerned about. We are seeing evidence that North Korean weapons are being used in uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How has a closer relationship with Moscow changed things for, for North Korea? I think it's changed everything for North Korea, really. I mean, during the COVID, especially at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, North Korea was in a, a pretty bad situation. It had to close itself off in, entirely from the outside world because its medical system, um, you know, is, is really lagging behind. And it was just very uh, concerned about, about a huge outbreak of the virus that it, it wouldn't be able to to contain, but the the side effect of that was it uh, the 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 self imposed blockade basically it, it decimated the the economy. Um, but now with with Russia um, after the invasion of Ukraine, North Korea saw an opportunity to be one of the few countries that was was willing to support Russia on the international stage, and Russia has really rewarded it for that uh, in a number of ways. Um, along with China, for example, Russia has um, shielded North Korea from uh, UN Security Council action when, when it tests long-range missiles. Um, it's, North Korea has been uh, managed to gain food aid and possibly technological expertise uh, by providing Russia with millions of artillery shells for use in Ukraine. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's also been able to test its missiles uh, in actual 
warfare for the for the first time uh, in Ukraine as well. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning of this interview as well about North Korean satellites. I think um, you know it's definitely possible that Russia Russia has a lot of uh, expertise in in space launches in this area, right? And uh, it's definitely possible that Russia might help North Korea improve its capabilities in that way. And if North Korea does launch more satellites, um, which it says it's going to do, it said that um, it's going to, it's planning to launch three satellites this year, I think Russia is going to um, shield it from, from any kind of action at the UN Security Council. James Fretwell, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Taipei. Still to come on today's programme. We think 2024 is probably a bit tricky year, but 2025 you will see again the thing picking up. EV will be a dominant technology in Europe. Can Renault unlock the future of electric car making in Europe? This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 7.21 here in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, I am delighted to say, Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Good morning, Simon. How's, good morning. How's life in the Brook world today? It's very good, thank you. Yes, even though it is early, but uh, I'm an early bird, so it suits me fine. That's yeah. absolutely fine for you. There is a <clears throat> chink of light in the sky as we come into work. It's one of those exciting things. It's absolutely no relevance to you if you're listening <laughs> wherever you are in the world. But believe me, for us, it's pretty special, everyone. Um, OK, what have you spotted in the papers? Yeah, so the New York Times has been talking to Israeli reservists who have returned from Gaza and they're campaigning against what the paper calls uh, the divisive politics and culture clashes um, that are currently the norm in Israel. So sitting around a campfire in the countryside, uh, New York Times reporter Isabel Kirshner is talking to a number of soldiers. One of them, she quotes, David Sherriz, um, is a special forces commander and also a startup entrepreneur. And I just think, gosh, how his life must have changed over the last few months. But anyway, Sherez is a co-founder of an organisation called Tikkun 2024. Tikkun, by the way, is Hebrew for correction or repair. And the organisation aims to um, preserve the spirit of cooperation that was brought on by the war, as Isabel Kirshner describes it. Um, and she quotes Sherez saying, everyone needs to do some soul searching. So, uh, And the piece points out that, uh, that Israel's military, which is sort of services mandatory for almost all citizens, um, has always been a sort of great equaliser and a great uniter, at least uh, for those who are drafted. So units might be made up of people from a variety of different cultures, backgrounds, difficult, uh, different political beliefs, but they work together. And so the question really that Tikkun is is asking and probably hoping to answer as well is can this spirit of unity be continued into civilian life? There's always a sense of disappointment among these soldiers, isn't there? That they've come back and instead of revisiting or returning to that spirit of unity, which was very much present following the October the 7th attacks by Hamas, they've come back to find a country as divided, as quarrelsome, squabbling in the way, way that it was. Um, but the interesting thing that I found about this article is the fact that um, Israel has been a country which has a tradition of reservists 
who then go and lead influential movements for change, which I wasn't aware of. No, exactly. It's a good point. So um, uh, pointing out that this has happened in the 1970s when a group of, yeah, as you say, reservists returning home from the war um, actually successfully pressured the then Prime Minister Golda Meir to resign. Uh, they also played a crucial role in protest movements after Israel's invasion of Lebanon in the 1980s. Um, and also, again, when uh, the second Lebanon war in, in 2006. And this time, yeah, they, they're, they're crowdfunded, but they seem to be successful. Uh, the paper, New York Times, reports that they are meeting lawmakers from across the political spectrum uh, and different uh, groups from different uh, aspects, uh, different sectors of Israeli society. So um, there certainly seems to be traction here. You would, th- you would think that there would be quite a lot of positive uh, feeling towards this group. But as the article continues on, it, it says, critics have called the Tikkun 2024 vision naive. Uh, the group has been denounced from the left and the right. Um, they don't seem to be getting that far, though, do they, <laughs> well, despite it, their well-meaning intentions? Well, is it is it a good thing if they're criticised from the left and the right? I mean, there is I always a feeling that you've, it works. If everyone <laughs> exactly. is angry... If you're it's upsetting both sides. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, when I talk to his, Israeli friends, a lot of them are saying, you know, pointing out that the current government is very unpopular. And there is a mood uh, for some kind of national reconciliation and a feeling that the only way forward for Israel is for these disparate groups to to try and come together in some way uh, and to lower the political temperature. Uh, Let's move on to a statement, uh, or rather the reaction to a statement that Emmanuel Macron made a couple of days ago. Um, There was this really strange, not strange, but rather unusual event that took place that Macron having not gone to the Munich Mm. Security Conference because they thought that the mood was a bit too gloomy in terms of the prospects for Ukraine, suddenly popped up corralling 20 European leaders together. Um, And at that, he said something along the lines of, we must expect non-Ukrainian or or our own soldiers to to head to the front line if necessary. That's not gone down very well, has it? No, it hasn't. As Le Monde reports, yes, um, the French president uh, uh, talking about um, the the Europe doing more and better. And of course, the background to this is the comments by um, uh, Trump president, well, soon perhaps possibly to be, President Trump making it clear that he would not support Ukraine uh, and, and uh, certainly not NATO if, if uh, other countries didn't pay up. So, yeah, according to Le Monde, Emmanuel Macron is insisting on sending troops to Ukraine, despite negative reactions, as you say, from Western allies. And Le Monde reports um, that uh, the US, the UK and even Germany's Olaf Scholz, who was actually at this conference that took place at the Elysee Palace has made it clear that as far as they're concerned, it won't happen. Um, the, the paper also reports with some sort of great, grim humour that the four leaders of the Visegrad group, that's Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, who met in Prague yesterday, were quick to tear each other apart over the war in Ukraine, but they were unanimous on uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron's commitments. None of them have plans to, to deploy troops to Ukraine. And as the paper points out, um, this is quite uh, quite controversial, quite surprising, really, because it was just 20 months ago, of course, that Emmanuel Macron was arguing that Russia should not be humiliated. So he seems to have done, and you can sort of understand it, this 180-degree U-turn, U-turn now being far more gung-ho. But in that typical Macron way, he has not brought the rest of the international community with him. It's, France has got an image that it can't shake off with, with the, the, the Ukraine war, given the fact that there is still talk of when Emmanuel Macron went to see uh, Vladimir Putin. And this is something that he can never get rid of, despite the fact that from that point on, he's now been you know, obviously clearly 
um, leading the charge uh, when it comes to supporting Ukraine. But actually, that said, it came as a surprise to me about the amount of money that the Germans are giving to, um, to to help the Ukraine effort. I think it's something like 17 billion euros, whereas the amount of money that the French have given has been less than 1 billion. Yeah, it, the, the, it's interesting, is it, the money people are giving, but then also the armaments. So as you say, Germany has been, does give a huge amount of money, but it has also been criticised for not providing the armaments that, that uh, the Ukrainians say they need. But it, it's interesting to see whether Macron is perhaps going or, or setting a, a, a course that others might eventually follow. OK. <clears throat> uh, finally, anyone going to Seville on holiday this year? Yeah, this is, if you are, by the way, you might find yourselves having to pay to um, visit uh, the the beautiful, stunning Plaza, Plaza de España. So according to the Times, uh, there are moves in Seville to charge tourists to visit this wonderful site. Uh, and this comes in the wake of the fact that Venice uh, this spring is, is trialling a, a charge for day trippers to the city of about five euros. Both plans have been very controversial. Um, interestingly, according to the Times, uh, this proposal has has uh, resulted in a popular backlash. Um, local people aren't very happy about it, uh, which surprised me slightly. And the Spanish national government as well has stepped in and said that they don't want to see it either. But it's interesting because as the paper points out, you know, this, this square is overrun with tourists. It is suffering as a result. And so it needs money to to repair the beautiful tiles, for instance, and the other ornamentation. And yet, I mean, what is the what's the message it gives to visitors? And also, I think the problem is, does this turn it from a, a living, breathing communal space into a kind of chintzy tourist attraction? I don't know. I think it becomes, um, I think it stays upright, for starters. <laughs> well, that would be useful. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, you pay a little bit to to help it stay the way it is, I, I would, I think, don't think anybody would would doubt that. The interesting thing that this article um, raises in the Times is the fact that uh, Spain has turned this political and has said you are privatising public spaces, which is a much bigger issue in terms of the way that our cities are run. And I know for a fact that when you try and work in in certain parts of London, and if I'm ever trying to, you know, get a film camera out, then people leap on you in what you would imagine is a perfectly innocuous public space. But they say, no, this is private property. And I was absolutely gobsmacked by just how much of our public space is privately owned. Um, And that has never been really discussed too much, whereas the Spanish have got into an absolute tizzy about, you know, are you allowed to effectively privatise something which belongs to everybody? It's an interesting debate, isn't it? You think of more and more of us shopping over the last few decades in shopping centres, shopping malls or whatever, and these look like public spaces. But as you say, they're actually uh, privately owned. So if you do something that that anybody would think was quite reasonable, public, you know, your, your natural expression uh, of your own opinions or natural behaviour that would be acceptable out in the street, then in these places they aren't. So, yeah, it's interesting that uh, public versus private and how do you maintain these sites, beautiful cities, beautiful uh, squares and streets or whatever, um, I mean, the, the paper points out, the Times points out that uh, that Seville has a population of 700,000, but it had 3 million tourists last year. So how do you get them to make some financial contribution to the city they're visiting? I'll wait until next time to ask you what you do in public, Simon Brook, that <laughs> prompts security guards to come rushing from and nowhere. Oh, not again. Simon, thank you so much for joining me thank in the you. studio. The time here in London is 7.31. You're listening to The Globalist. A look now at the headlines. 
U.S. President Joe Biden has won the Democratic presidential primary in Michigan in spite of a campaign against his position on the Israel-Hamas war. Tens of thousands of people spoiled their ballot paper by voting uncommitted. One in four civilians living in Gaza are one step away from famine, according to the United Nations. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said aid groups face overwhelming obstacles just to get a bare minimum of supplies into Gaza. Several NATO allies have dismissed a suggestion by the French President Emmanuel Macron that other countries could deploy ground troops to Ukraine. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said there had been no change to the agreed position that no European country or NATO member state would send troops to Ukraine. And the lawyer of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been arrested and briefly detained in Moscow. Vasily Dubkov was held for violating public order. Mr Dubkov accompanied Alexei Navalny's mother to the Arctic prison colony where Mr Navalny died earlier this month. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's almost three decades since the Renault 5 that many of us grew grew up with went out of production. So it was perhaps no surprise that the launch of a completely overhauled model has made it to the headlines, in France at least. And for more than one reason. The neat little bright green car is Renault, indeed France, even Europe, making a play for the future of electric vehicles. But there's some catching up to do. There's a lot of catching up to do, with China's BYD recently becoming the world's biggest seller of electric vehicles. Well, to talk about this competition, I'm joined now by Isabel Hilton, China expert and visiting professor at King's College London, and by Peter Siegel news editor for Automotive News Europe, who was on hand in Geneva for the unveiling of Renault's R5. A very good morning to you both. Good morning. Uh, Peter, could you begin uh, by talking to us about what happened at the launch? And for those of us who haven't seen the little car, what's it like? Well, I actually uh, was one of the rare Americans who drove a Renault 5 back in the 1980s. My mother had one during what we, used to, what we called the oil crisis back then. So it was actually quite, quite exciting for me uh, on a personal level. Uh, so the new Renault 5 is, it's a small hatchback, uh, five doors, um, very light, uh, rather efficient uh, for an electric vehicle. And the key selling point is probably the price. It's just going to start at around 25,000 euros, which would undercut most small electric vehicles on the market now by, by thousands of euros. So what we saw at the unveiling in Geneva was, was fascinating because on one side of the hall, you had sort of Renault representing old Europe, you know, with mostly gasoline-based cars, a few electric vehicles. And then across the hall, you had BYD with a, an entire lineup of hyper-modern electric vehicles and also MG, which is owned by a, a Chinese conglomerate, SAIC, with their own lineup of, of electric vehicles uh, and also at, at very attractive prices. So it was really interesting. There was a lot of excitement around the Renault 5 launch, but equally across the way, there were a lot of journalists and, and onlookers um, waiting to hear what what executives at BYD and MG would say. So it, w- it was actually quite interesting. Um, Isabel, bringing you into this one, I mean, the thing that Peter mentioned there is the fact that the the, the little R five is, uh, regardless of its technological capabilities, is cheaper, and that's something that the Chinese have been able to do, isn't it? 
Yes, and that has been, apart from the fact that Chinese vehicles are actually very good now, the EV, they were never very good at the internal combustion engine and the design was clunky. But the, but this uh, new generation of electric vehicles is well designed and their price point has been, has been killing uh, at least most manufacturers, including German manufacturers, because it comes in at around 11, 12,000 euros cheaper than any model that, uh, that has been produced either in China by a German manufacturer or in Germany. So, you know, this is an, an inspired move by Renault. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be followed up by other models, um, but there, there was, you know, the, the, as a sign of the times, uh, uh, the BYD have, have commissioned a fleet of enormous uh, car carriers, the first of which has just docked in Germany, carrying very large volumes of electric vehicles for the German market. And it's causing a great deal of consternation in an industry that's been the linchpin of, of post-war German success. And this is something that really is to behold, isn't it, Peter? I mean, this these own car carrying ships, which Isabel has, has mentioned, you know, actually bringing cars to Germany is, is something that 20 years ago would be absolutely unfathomable. So how is it that the Chinese have managed to do this? And, and, and how much of a disadvantage has it put put Europe? Well, I think Isabel's probably the expert on this, but what, what the Chinese manufacturers have done, and I'm mostly speaking specifically about BYD right now, is they've managed to become completely vertically integrated in the EV supply chain. So that means making their own batteries to their own specs, their own electronics, uh, their own electric motors, and just creating this really uh, efficient ecosystem. Um, obviously, wages in China are less than they are in Western Europe. Even when you uh, ship these cars over here, you're still at a huge price advantage. And I, I don't think that the Chinese brands have fully exploited their, their price uh, advantage here in Europe, I think because of uh, probably competition and antitrust issues. As, as you probably know, the EC has started a, a probe of uh, the Beijing government's support for the EV industry with the potential for for punitive tariffs, which is could be a double-edged sword, but but just to pick up on the uh, on the ship, which whose progress I had been following, the next step for BYD is they they are planning to build their own factory in Europe in Hungary, which could undercut uh, you know any tariff issues. Um, they would also probably want to create a similar sort of ecosystem. So I think we've actually just sort of seen the beginning of the Chinese automakers potentially exploiting their their ability to you know, really undercut German, Italian, French, uh, British domestic automakers on EV prices. And it's, this is something that the Chinese have been doing for a very, very long time, isn't it, Isabel? I, re I remember when uh, uh, Peter mentioned SAIC, Shanghai Automotive, they bought MG and they took from 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 a sort of a, a crumbling British firm and they turned a British heritage brand into something that was Chinese but retained its British identity. I mean, this is something that they've been doing for a very, very long time, isn't it? They did. They did much the same with Volvo, in fact. Um, but but this goes back to uh, the, the decision by uh, the party leadership, essentially, in the mid noughties to invest in everything to do with uh, climate change. So everything that the carbon transition, the energy transition would need, that includes solar, wind, you know, all forms of renewables and batteries and um, and electric uh, transport. The government then obliged people to buy these cars by putting 
putting a, a year's delay, for example, in Shanghai, if you bought a, a conventional uh, car, it, it would take you a year to get it licensed. Whereas if you bought an EV, you could have it on the road the next day. So they created the domestic market. Now, one result of this is that you have a an, an staggering number of car manufacturers in China. There are over 70 of them. And they're waging an absolutely ferocious price war at home. So BYD is killing, is crushing its competition. Uh, and, and car companies are going bankrupt. And there's a huge amount of surplus production, which is now finding its way onto international markets. So Peter's absolutely right. This is the beginning of something really very, very large. And it will be very contentious. Because if you wipe out the European car industry, it's not just the car manufacturers, it's all the supply chains. It's in, in Germany, it's the Mittelstand, all the, you know, the people who produce bits. And electric vehicles don't don't require that. They in, not only are they being imported, but even the domestic production is going to is going to make a lot of of engineering capability pretty much redundant. And that's going to be a very big thing uh, for yeah. the uh, the economies of Europe. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of jump in quickly and, and just point out what Isabel said about overcapacity in China. It's a, it's a very much an echo of the late 70s, early 80s with Japan when they had a lot of overcapacity and, and Europe and the US were sort of their outlets for that. And it was very contentious in the 1980s. Um, there were quotas imposed, I believe, in the UK on Japanese cars. And what the result was is that Toyota um, and, and also Asian cars now with Hyundai and Kia, but Toyota has Toyota and Nissan uh, built factories in Europe and Toyota is now the number two brand in Europe by volume. Peter, staying with you briefly, um, can Europe fight back? I mean, we, we start with the little green Renault R5, but is Isabel's prediction or, 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 or warning that, that China is going to swallow up the European automotive market something that can be resisted? Um, two quick points on that. There is another car being launched this year by Stellantis, which is the Citroen EC3. It's an adaptation of a car designed for India. They're going to build that in, uh, um, I believe, the Czech Republic, and it will start at 23,900 euros. It's also full electric. And two years from now, Renault will launch a, sorry, three years from now, Renault will launch um, a, a mini car called the Twingo. It's an update. It's also going to be an electric vehicle built in Slovenia at under 20,000 euros, they say, and Citroen will also have a version of that car under 20,000 euros. So there, there is a wave of cheap EVs coming from European automakers built in Europe. The problem is, is there any margin in, in there? Um, as to whether Europe can resist, it's, it, what it's probably going to require is coordinated action on the EU level, uh, you know, using um, uh, regulatory tools, um, potentially uh, tariffs, um, but just to create that sort of integrated vertical supply chain that the Chinese automakers enjoy. And as we know, you know, Europe, uh, the idea of Europe working together is great, but the reality is sometimes it, it, it falls a little short and it, it takes a long time and, and they don't have a lot of time. Peter, Peter Siegel and Isabel Hilton, thank you both for joining me on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, 
we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 8.43am in Copenhagen, 7.43 here in London. Now, we may never know who or what caused the explosions that made the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines to burst. The Danish police are winding down their investigation. Sweden closed its inquiry last month. So what happens next? Well, joining me now is the journalist Bruno Kaufmann, based in Sweden, and also the Swiss Broadcasting Company's Global Democracy Correspondent. Good morning, Bruno. Good morning, Emma. Just briefly remind us what happened in 2022. Yes, in 2022, uh, that was uh, in uh, September, after uh, Russia had already cut supplies through its Nord Stream pipeline of uh, natural gas to Germany. It was Nord Stream 1, which was uh, cut off. Uh, Nord Stream 2 was still not uh, certified. But in the end of September, there were two explosions or several explosions, which basically uh, burst these pipelines. Uh, it was an environmental disaster. Local wildlife was really damaged, but it had also huge geopolitical impact. And since then, everybody was asking who was behind this sabotage. The implication always was, I mean, sabotage was a word that was used from the, from the beginning. Um, what is the likelihood of us ever finding out who did it? And because both Russia and Ukraine blamed each other. And there were huge questions about whether Russia would be brave enough to, to instigate self-sabotage. But that really was the, the thought, wasn't it? It was, and uh, there were also reports, in fact, uh, uh, su supported by the Russian side that uh, the US was behind this sabotage. And it's clear that uh, the Swedish and the Danish uh, uh, prosecutors who now uh, uh, stopped this investigation because they said they have no jurisdiction on this case anymore because they couldn't find any of their own citizens or any of the preparations being done on the grounds in Sweden or Denmark. They said that must be sabotage. And they also uh, said that it's probably a state actor because it was done in, in a way they found out. So, so so in the end, uh, uh, it's now with the German prosecutors who are still uh, 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 investigating this case uh, to to probably uh, uh, get to the solution. But of course, it will be very, very hard to find it out because it's the time has gone and uh, the actors behind it are not interested at all to be put to the limelight. Why? Why is there no interest now? I mean, we, we talked about the fact that, you know, well, you mentioned the fact that they have no jurisdiction and they have, you know, it, it's going to be a very hard job to actually pin it down on someone. But is there just a sort of a sense of ex exhaustion among the Danes and the Swedes that they will, they, it's just there's no point in trying to find out who's done this? No, I, I, I... Uh, it's the assumption that they 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 have information about the possible uh, uh, people and uh, and actors behind it, but they have no clue how they could get these people to their uh, uh, to to their countries to invest. That I mean, there are reports about possible pro-Ukrainian uh, uh, forces which had used a Polish vessel out of Rostock. This is probably one of the more uh, uh, more uh, um, the, ten, the, the ideas which which have been put forward, which are are more likely possibly. But I mean, these people they cannot get the hold on them, 
And and it's also a question because, I mean, the ocean floor now, especially in the Baltic Sea, which is now becoming a NATO sea with some Russian uh, uh, ports, uh, becomes more and more a, 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 a war zone. And uh, the state actors, both in Sweden and in the NATO and in Russia, of course, they are not really interested in, in bringing these cases up to uh, make tensions even higher. But still, uh, it's also a big interest to get better control on this ocean floor, because this is a new dimension in the conflict between the West and Russia. Bruno, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It's time now to talk fashion and retail with Dana Thomas, a Paris-based writer and the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes and a regular voice around uh, the microphone here at Monocle Radio. Dana, good morning. How's Paris looking this morning? It's looking sunny. Hooray. Good. That's all we need to know. <laughs> uh, let's tell us about uh, where's, what, what, what from the world of fashion, please. Well, first, Louis Vuitton announced that they are staging their cruise show in Barcelona this year in May. And that it's not just going to be a cruise show. They're going to do a whole big thing with planned exhibitions, cultural activations, education programs. They're trying to not be seen as just dropping in and and uh, and trying to throw a fashion show, come and leave. They want to have an impact on the city. So they're going to try to be a bit more involved and touch more people. It's also interesting. Louis Vuitton is going to be staging the 37th America's Cup uh which is a, the sailing races that quali- are the qualifying races for the America's Cup in Barcelona between August and October this year. So Barcelona is the Louis Vuitton city of the year, in a sense. I mean, what is it that's, that's about that Barcelona so special? I mean, you mentioned that it's, you know, it's an attractive place to go to. Um, but the fact is that all eyes are currently on Paris because of the Olympics. Vuitton decided to do something a little bit outside of all of that. And they are dominating the Olympics. You know, LVMH made the, uh, one of the brands, Chaumet, made the medals for the Olympics. LVMH is the biggest sponsor of the Olympics. So everybody's going to be drinking Moet and Chandon champagne while they're watching archery and fencing. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be already sort of their town. So they decided, well, if we're going to have the sailing races there in August and in September, why don't we kick it off with a fashion show in May? There is also the, the idea that the fashion houses now are using the world as the stage. I mean, you look at Paris and you see um, what Pharrell did with the, you know, with the Ile Saint-Louis last year. But then you see other houses, Dior, Chanel, they go around the world now, you know, from everywhere, from Tokyo to, to, to India to, to Senegal. Um what does that do for, for fashion brands in terms of the way that they make their, you know, it's a, it's a global presence that's being felt now? Yes. Well, it, you know, this is what I call the Instagram effect in, in fashion. Everything is a set and it's all about making everything look glamorous and good on Instagram. And so they they travel around the world. They do these incredible settings. They're making these um, unbelievable pictures. You know, we used to have the fashion photographers doing the um, unbelievable pictures for fashion magazines. But fashion magazines have gotten so anemic in their budgets and in their pages that they don't really have, you know, Dick Avedon shooting fabulous models on the Place de la Concorde or in front of the, you know, the Egyptian uh, pyramids. They have their own fashion shows there. And that way they can also control the narrative that much more. They're the ones creating the the look. They're not relating. They're not waiting for a photographer and an artistic director to do so. They're doing it and they're in control. 
Um, you often talk about uh, sustainability. It is it is your area of fashion. Um, there's some bad news um, from a textile recycler in Sweden, isn't there? Yes, this was very heartbreaking. And actually, I'm going to see if I'm going to write about it this week because it's, um, you know, the the fashion industry is one of the last areas of major industry that's a major polluter to attack uh, next the next thing, you know, climate change. And, you know, the car industry is on top of it. Agriculture sort of getting on top of it. But fashion is not. And so the biggest uh, company to come up with what we call next-gen materials, meaning that they recycle materials or they're you know, materials made in labs or something that was that was up and running called Renew Cell uh, in Sweden went filed for bankruptcy this week. And the reason they filed for bankruptcy was because they were unable to secure sufficient financing to compete and com- and carry on. That basically fashion brands don't want to invest in this tech because they like the way things are done already. They make so much money at it. And some have ponied up some money, but not enough. They're not making the full commitment. And this is after Bolt Threads in in Silicon Valley, which was doing uh, mycelium made leather out of leather-like material out of mushroom root systems and and silk grown in labs. It went under last spring because they they just don't want to – they're not making the commitment. They don't want to change. Dana Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Paris. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally today, vegan ham, vegetarian sausage and no chicken nuggets. The culinary world's ultimate tribute bands, perhaps, but an annoyance for anyone who's actually accidentally dropped a bleeding vegan burger in their shopping cart instead of something a little bit more meaty. Now, France, which enjoys a reputation for taking what it eats pretty seriously, has decided that if it is not meat, then you can't describe it as such. Uh, I'm joined now by Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor, and a woman who sat next to me eating a steak, Nina, so you know what from what position you and I come from. Ah, that's right. That was in Paris last month, wasn't it, Emma? It, it was... Yes, full disclosure here. Yes. Non-vegans, you and I. Ste- well, I, <laughs> I, I think you had the chicken, but I, was, I went full steak. Um, and it is that thing, isn't it, that France is, in its own, by its very nature, a, a country which will have a steak on most menus. That's true. Um, France has been one of those European countries that's notoriously sceptical about the sort of uh, you know, meat-free, meat, for want of a better word, market, which is a huge market that's growing at an annual rate of over 12%. You know, this is a market that by the next decade is expected to be worth something like $36 billion. Lots of that growth coming from China and the United States. Not too much of it, as you'd expect, Emma, coming from uh, France as well, which is notoriously protectionist when it comes to agricultural practices. And also the other point I'd make is that, you know, French consumers, and I've had this conversation with European supermarket owners on the fringes of big conferences in years gone by, consumers in France and indeed in other uh, continental European countries are notoriously discerning. They don't necessarily want to see something that uh, is as they perceive mislabeled on a menu or even on packaging in the supermarket, they won't necessarily buy it. And there's, according to various surveys that have been done over the years, a higher expectation by French consumers that the state will intervene and regulate if something isn't perceived is marketed as something that they don't necessarily believe it to be. So that's the economics on the large scale. Uh, France, by the way, it, you know, is quite well known for uh, intervening in protectionist manners. Um, 
not just in the food industry, but in other industries as well, like, say, for instance, in the pharmaceutical industry in years gone by. The other point I'd make is that, you know, this is something that Emmanuel Macron has taken seriously, not just in this term, but in his first term as well. You'll remember that he introduced legislation uh, that irked many a cafe owner in Paris, saying that if something was supposedly labelled as fait maison, made at home, homemade, and if it wasn't, they had to take that off the menu. If something involved um, produit surgelé, which is, you know, frozen goods that had to be very, very clearly labelled. So this is a continuation of Macron's policy. And let's face it, farmers in Europe are getting extremely irritated with their governments. So perhaps there's a little bit of populist pandering uh, to that as well, because it's perhaps a political easy win for him. I mean, this is, it's interesting you mentioned the, the fait maison idea. I think it was uh, lots of French bakeries in in. in right across the country, suddenly started to panic when they realised that actually their croissants weren't made on site. And the happiness and the, the willingness that the French population has to accept intervention, I think it's the only way you could describe it, in terms of the quality of their food and what they want and do not want to be eating. I mean, it would be difficult for that level of um, intervention to, to come from another country, I mean, especially if you look at the United Kingdom. Um isn't, how interesting is it that you, you have a, a, the state actually stepping in to help decide what's on your plate? Well, I think you and I, Emma, have both spent a lot of time in France. I, full disclosure, I was French educated. Um, and so for the first 20, 18 years of my life, I was imbued in French culture. And I think it is, although I am a British and live in the UK, and I think the cultural attitudes towards food are enormously different. So especially uh, when it comes to regulation as well, I still remember the days when Tony Blair was trying to get sugar and salt taxes through, um, you know, this sort of traffic-like system of calorie intake on various ready-made meals in the UK that are, by the way, consumed in much higher quantity than in other countries like France, where there's still this tradition of cooking at home and people wanting, more people wanting to know where their food comes from, how fresh it is, and so on and so forth. Um, in the UK, even successive Conservative governments have had a really hard time tackling this issue of high sugar and salt consumption. You know, every year we have these conversations about whether or not there should be a sugar tax on food. And the supermarkets are extremely powerful in places like the United Kingdom. I think obviously in France and in other European countries, as I was saying before, there's a certain acknowledgement uh, that the consumer does vote with their feet. And that's an acknowledgement that's made its way all the way up to the top of government here in France. So, you know, this isn't a huge uh, piece of legislation on Thursday. You know, lots of people might have raised their eyebrows outside of France and thought, why are French politicians at a time when the world is dealing with war and, you know, an, an economic downturn and various other pressures? Why on earth are French politicians passing a decree about meat-free products so that you can't call a a cauliflower steak, a steak, you know, banned are the words fillet and escalope. Um, but I think it just speaks to the fact that the French are extremely discerning about what they uh, put inside their mouths. And, you know, they want to keep some semblance of, um, of tradition as well. Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Chris Chermak and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwa and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 